This is the third in our series, This Is My Son, Listen to Him. We're exploring the teaching of Jesus uh, through the, uh, the whole Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's going to take us uh, a, few, a few months to do that. Uh, in total, there'll be 16 messages on this, but I think it's, it's going to be a really valuable uh, series for us to just to hear Jesus' direct words uh, and see how in them uh, we, uh, we see the gospel of grace come through. The first part in that series is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 to 7. And we're up to the, uh, the third, as I said, in this series. Uh, the topic for today is uh, your kingdom come, the, the third uh, clause of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and this section where Jesus talks about uh, righteousness and how it, it must be uh, even more, even greater than that of the Pharisees. Uh, now, we've seen that this Sermon on the Mount is actually a covenant declaration. Uh, and we've seen so far uh, two of the elements of a covenant. Uh, the first is uh, the covenant blessings uh, that we saw in the Beatitudes, declaring the Lord's intention to bless his people by entering into relationship with them. And secondly, uh, we saw the mission statement last week in 11 to 16, uh, which is declaring the ultimate purpose of the covenant and Israel's role in it. Uh, they are to be a display of the holiness of the Lord to the whole world, uh, all the nations. Well, this passage corresponds to the, the solemn and repeated call that we see in the Old Testament to uh, obey the Lord and all his commands. Essentially, to live as a people who are under the authority of the Lord as their king. Now, we see this uh, at many places, but primarily in the, the formal cutting of the covenants at Sinai. You'll, you'll see in a moment why that term cutting is used in a covenant. Uh, reading from Exodus 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, covenants were reasonably common in the ancient Near Eastern world, not only in everyday life and business, but also in politics. Sometimes a covenant would be made between a king 
and another smaller clan or tribe or, or nation. This covenant would involve the head of the smaller clan agreeing to live under the king as their sovereign, pledging loyalty to him in return for the king's goodwill and protection. These covenants reflected the kind of covenant that Israel was coming into at Sinai with the Lord as their sovereign. Now, the covenant cutting ceremony involved the swearing of an oath by the people to obey every word of their sovereign Lord and the shedding of blood in a sacrificed oxen. There's the cutting part of the covenant. Notice how half of the blood is thrown against the altar representing the Lord and half is thrown on the people, uh, bringing the two parties together in blood. As if to say, if either party doesn't keep their part in this covenant, may their blood be shed. The Lord's part is to be their king and God, to go with them to fulfil his promise to Abraham, their father. Their part is to obey every word of his law. And in doing so, they're declaring their loyalty to him as their sovereign king. Now here in uh, Matthew 5, 17-20, we see Jesus reaffirming what Moses affirmed at that time, the solemn duty of Israel to obey the law. And see how he, he links obedience to the law with being in the kingdom of God. He makes some incredibly high claims about the nature of the law and about the, the level of righteousness that the law demands of anyone who would depend on it for their righteousness. Anyone who uh, wants to be righteous enough to be a citizen of this kingdom. Now, for those who thought that Jesus was overriding or throwing out the law, he makes it very clear. He hasn't come to abolish it, but to fulfil it. What, what did he mean by that? Maybe this illustration will help. In my suburb, uh, there's a lot of development going on. It's, it's an older suburb uh, with uh, reasonably large blocks. And so generally, whenever a house goes on the market, it's snapped up by a builder, a developer, who uh, demolishes it, subdivides it. And uh, before you know it, there's two or three nice, shiny new townhouses up in its place. So when a little while ago, the house next door to us went on the market, I said to my family, all right, let's brace ourselves because for the next nine months, we're going to be living next door to a building site. However, the young couple who bought the house, they didn't buy it to demolish and rebuild. They bought it to live in and to renovate. So step by step, they're bringing the original home back to the point where it's starting to look brand new again. In a way, that's a picture of what Jesus is saying here. He hasn't come to demolish 
the law of Moses, to discard it and replace it with something new and different. Rather, he's bringing about a renovation. Not that the law itself is broken and run down, but all of the traditions and the misinterpretations and the watering down of the law that had happened over the over the years and the decades had served to obscure its true and full beauty and grace. And, and they had hidden its true purpose from the people. Now to understand what Jesus is meaning when he says, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not one, uh, one iota or dot will pass from the law. It's helpful here to compare this verse to other places where he says something similar. Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So, in talking about heaven and earth passing away and uh, the law, he's not here speaking about chronology as such. He's not saying, well, the heavens and earth will pass away first, and then after that, the law will pass away. What he's saying is the law, the law of God is even more secure than the most secure thing we know the world in which we live, the heavens and the earth, the creation. Even if and when heaven and earth pass away, he's saying the law of God will remain. He uses these two words, uh, iota and dot. Now, an iota is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It looks just like an apostrophe in English and it was easily missed and, in fact, uh, sometimes it was accidentally left out by scribes because it was such a small letter. Uh, and sometimes deliberately, if they were pressed for space on their scroll, they'd leave out the iota or the yoth um, because the context meant they could still understand what the word was saying. So it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A dot refers to the tiny extensions on a Hebrew letter, even smaller than an iota, a bit like the serifs that we have on our fonts, like the little little lines on the, the ends of uh, a Times New Roman letter. Now, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus had an absolute confidence in the inspiration and the accuracy and the inerrancy of God's written law. He's referring here to the actual black and white, the ink on parchment written law. Not even the smallest detail of the law, he's saying, will will pass away. The law in its essence is the expression of the character of God himself. Not just what he speaks, it's how he operates. It's come to us in the form of the written code. Uh, God has expressed his law, communicated to us in a way that is accessible, 
and understandable to us. It's in human language, in visual form, on uh, on paper. But and it's it's framed in a way that is appropriate. It's contextual for our context as sinners living in a sinful world. Behind every command in the law lies a character trait of God. For example, the command, do not commit adultery. And clearly that's framed for sinners who are both perpetrators and victims of adultery. Nevertheless, it has behind it a principle, a principle of marital faithfulness, something that God himself displays in his unfailing and jealous love for his bride, his people. So that the the law of God, which is about uh, undying faithfulness and commitment, is at the heart of the character of God himself, is expressed to us in the written law in a context of us being sinners in a sinful world uh, in many ways such as do not commit adultery. In other words, remain faithful to your husband or wife. So in this sense, the law is secure and as stable as God himself. It would only pass away if God passed away. Now, there will come a time when the written law as we have it will be no more. When that particular expression of the law given for sinners in a sinful world will no longer be needed. Why? Because there will be a new heavens and a new earth filled with righteousness and the the law of God will be so indelibly written not by pen and ink on a paper but by the Holy Spirit on our hearts. Now at that time Jesus' words at the end of verse 18 will come to pass. All will be accomplished. And so the the written code will go, but the eternal law of God's character will remain forever. Now, there are, there are three ways that we should understand Jesus as fulfilling the law. And that corresponds to the three types of law, uh, the types of commands that we see in the, the law, the Mosaic Old Testament law. Firstly, there is the ceremonial law, all the commands and rules around the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and all the laws about what's clean and unclean. Now, Jesus fulfilled this aspect of the law by being the reality to which these things point, the the substance of which these commands are just the shadow. He is the true temple. He is the true high priest. He is the once and for all sacrifice. He is the the holy one who cleanses the unclean. So in fulfilling this part of the law, he renders it obsolete because the purpose for which it was given has been completed. Now, while being obsolete, it doesn't mean we should tear these parts out of the Bible 
and not read them or even obey them. We, we should keep reading them. And the way that we obey these parts of the law is not by following their prescriptions. We no longer have priests. We no longer make sacrifices and so on. But we still obey them by seeing them for what they are, a springboard for comprehending and marvelling at the glory of Christ to whom they point. Secondly, there's the, uh, the civil law, which prescribes how Israel was to operate as a nation. Its justice system, its civil structures, uh, administration, uh, their relationship to other peoples and nations and so on. Jesus fulfilled uh, this aspect of the law by reducing the whole nation of Israel down to one man himself and then rebuilding it again in a new way in the church. The church is just as much the people of God as Israel was. It's the direct continuation of Israel as we saw last week but Unlike Israel now, the nation Israel, we're not defined by ethnicity or nationality or politics or geography. We're defined by our common faith in Jesus Christ. Because Christ has fulfilled this part of the law, it is reapplied in a new way to the church. The principles behind it remain but the application is different because the nature of the people is different. One clear example of this is the death penalty. The ultimate act of removing from Israel those who committed crimes that brought death or, or deep dishonour to others who were made in the image of God. That's the, the basis for the death penalty. Uh, anyone who sheds the blood of a person by a person, their blood will be shed because they're made in the image of God. God said that to Noah after the flood. So the death penalty was there in place in the nation of Israel. Well, this principle is reapplied in the New Testament and it becomes what uh, we've come to call excommunication. Removing from the congregation a person who poses a risk of great harm to the flock through things like false teaching, causing division or promoting immorality. Thirdly, there is the moral law, spelled out in the Ten Commandments, summed up in the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbour. Jesus fulfilled this aspect of the law by keeping it perfectly on our behalf at every point in which we have failed which is actually every point Jesus succeeded at every point in which we disobeyed Jesus obeyed Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and this is the perfect righteousness the, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is then given to us freely through the the grace, the work of justification. See what Romans 8, 3 to 4 says. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice that the work of justification there in verse 3 is that God in Christ does for us what the law was unable to do, to take a a sinner who deserved wrath and death and to declare them righteous by removing the sin and the judgment from them. And this, this justification then flows into an obedience to the law, we see in verse 4, in which we now uh, walk according to the law because we're walking in the freedom of the Spirit. This means that the moral law still stands. Christians are called to obey the moral law. We're still called to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbour as yourself. We're still called to to read the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and see it as a as a, a a guide to how we are to love God and love our neighbour. But we do it not as a way of earning salvation. It's an outworking of our salvation. As we've been reading Psalm 119 over the last few Sundays. We've been hearing over and over, verse by verse, the words of someone who loves the law. Now maybe you've felt that it's been a little bit over the top, almost an obsessive preoccupation with the law. And maybe maybe it feels a little bit counterintuitive to us as Christians because we know that we're not under law but we're under grace didn't Jesus constantly condemn the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees and warn against the heavy burden that they were placing on people by their insistence on a meticulous obedience to the law so how does that line up with Psalm 119 even more though how does it line up with Jesus very strong words here in the Sermon on the Mount about not relaxing even the smallest command, not even one dot or iota of the law will will pass away. Well, the difference between what we read in Psalm 119 and what we see the New Testament writers and Jesus himself saying about not being under the law could be summed up with two Ds. Sorry, I'll just uh, skip through those slides that I... Yep, there we are. Firstly, Jesus and his apostles are critiquing those who depend on the law for their righteousness. They think their obedience will achieve and maintain their right standing before God. For them... The law is onerous, it's a burden, it's something to be obeyed out of duty and fear. But Psalm 119 are the words of someone who delights in the law. They're not looking to their obedience as a way to be justified because they know they've already been justified by grace through faith in God and 
his mercy, a mercy displayed in a, a shadowy way in the Old Testament sacrifices, that ceremonial law, and now crystal clear has that grace has been shown in Jesus and the redemption in his death and resurrection. This person has been set free by the action of the triune God and now they see the beauty of his character in the moral law and so they delight to pursue it. I think Jesus in this passage is speaking to those who are labouring under that first approach to the law. Both the Pharisees and the scribes who were teaching and demanding a, a dependence upon the law for righteousness. But also the people who have been brought up under that burdensome teaching and knew nothing else. They needed to hear the good news of the grace and truth that's come in Jesus Christ. The grace that will take the law and cause it to no longer be a burden but to become a delight. To the legalists, the scribes and Pharisees, who insisted on depending on the law, it's as if he's saying to them, okay, so you want to achieve your righteousness through obedience to the law, do you? You think that you will be given entrance into the kingdom of God based on your performance, do you? Well, Let's see what that looks like. You must keep even the smallest commandment perfectly to its fullest implications without relaxing it in the slightest. Not only that, but you must also teach that same standard of obedience to others. And if, if you're able to do that, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then, he preempts what he knows will be people's response. He knows that his listeners will be thinking, well, that sounds like the scribes and the Pharisees. We know that they strive to keep the law. We know that they, they do not relax a single command. We've seen them all the time following the rules, praying and fasting and giving. They're in the synagogue every Sabbath, teaching and instructing us and our children. They've even worked out all the detailed ways in which the law is to be kept, down to the, the smallest application. They even tithe their herbs and spices. They know the law so well that they've even memorised it. So, so Jesus, are you saying that we should be like the Pharisees? That's why what Jesus says in verse 20 is so devastating to both the scribes and Pharisees and to those who look to them as examples. I tell you, that's not the verse I was looking for. I missed that slide out. Anyway, verse 20 says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Think of the most righteous person you can, he says, even that is not good enough for the kingdom of heaven. If you want to depend on the law, 
you need to know that the law demands perfection. A perfection that these men may claim to have attained, but in reality even their standard is not high enough. Can you see that? If, if we take this Sermon on the Mount as simply a new set of instructions for Christians, a, a new law, the law of Christ, or as some call it, the way of Jesus, a guidebook to how to do the Christian life, then we're actually condemned by verse 20 as much as the scribes and Pharisees were. If this sermon is meant to define what a Christian is, then none of us can be a Christian because we cannot keep it perfectly as Jesus demands. One of the most common misunderstandings of the Christian faith is that Christianity is just like the other religions that teach us that we have to try hard to be a good person. And if we're good enough or if our goodness outweighs our badness, then we'll get into heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever they see as the goal. When I explain to non-Christians with that perception how this isn't the message of Christianity or Jesus, that we're saved by grace, not works, they're often incredulous, as if I might be holding to some aberrant form of Christianity. I think it's partly because the human heart naturally resists the message of grace because it takes away our self-confidence and our boasting. So we don't want to hear that we cannot save ourselves by what we do, but partly also because I think the church has been guilty of preaching that false gospel of legalism, which really is no gospel at all. It's just another system of works righteousness. If you're someone who has this view of the Christian faith, whether you're someone on the outside looking in and seeing what looks like judgmentalism and a holier-than-thou attitude, or you're someone who's grown up in a, a Christian environment that's been harsh and legalistic, or someone who thinks that your Christian faith is defined and validated by how active you are in doing good deeds, especially the kind of good deeds that the world says are good and acceptable, then you need to hear this. Jesus is knocking that view of Christianity on the head. His teaching of the law in this sermon is not to give you a challenge for you to try to rise up to attain, but to show you that the law demands such perfection that unless there's another way to receive this perfect righteousness that the law requires, then we're lost. That's why the gospel is such good news. To people with this heavy yoke of legalism around their necks, Jesus declares, I have not come to abolish the law, but here's the good news. I have come to fulfil the law. And by doing so, I will bring you into a new relationship to the law where it becomes a delight, not a burden. See, the gospel declares to us that this perfect righteousness that exceeds 
that of the scribes and Pharisees. This perfect righteousness that is necessary for us to enter the kingdom of God and live as citizens under his sovereign rule and favour, it's available to us not through the law, but through the gift of the righteousness of Christ, freely, graciously bestowed on us through faith. That's what justification is. When the Father looks at us, having clothed us in his Son's perfect righteousness, and he credits to our account the obedience of Jesus on our behalf. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law, as we saw in that Romans passage earlier, the law is now fulfilled in us through this act of justification. That's called imputed righteousness. Despite the fact that our actions and our works deserve the opposite, they deserve wrath and judgment, in grace and mercy we are not only forgiven for our sin, but we are counted as righteous. We are not only just as if we'd never sinned, which is a way to remember justified, or just as if I'd never sinned, but we're also just as if I had perfectly obeyed. Justification removes the guilt of sin and clothes us in the positive, perfect righteousness. And as I said earlier, this imputed righteousness then produces what we would call imparted righteousness. Not that we become sinless in this life or that we stop sinning, but our life and behaviour begin to change as the Spirit is at work in us to transform us to become like Jesus whose perfect righteousness we've received through justification. Now we're set free from the power and the slavery of sin and we find that God's commands become that delight. We not only desire to do his will, but we find that the Spirit empowers us now to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The third article of the Lord's Prayer is Your Kingdom Come. So we've seen so far, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And it's closely tied to the next clause, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray that the Father's kingdom might come is also to pray that we might be found worthy of entrance into that kingdom. That we might be able to stand before the Father with a perfect righteousness but it's a prayer that it's not a righteousness of our own we won't be able to boast in our own righteousness we'll only be able to boast in that perfect righteousness of christ that has been given to us 